The main question now is whether Congress will enact a continuing resolution come October 1st or whether we'll have a government shutdown. Either way, things will get messy come September 30th. Here with some shutdown preparation tips for contractors, federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. It seems like we keep coming back to this topic, but Congress keeps coming back to the same tropes over the budget over and over again. And so it looks pretty likely maybe a short shutdown. Tom, I do think we're at a better than 50-50 chance for a shutdown at the beginning of the year. I would be the first person in line to be happy if I'm wrong. But the way it's shaping up right now, you have to really follow uh, particularly what House leaders and House rank-and-file members are saying. If you follow that, then it really does look like we're on track for a possible shutdown. And, Tom, this one could be more than a day or two. So if you're a government contractor, I think it's really important to understand what the long-term impact could be on your business. Things like not being able to get paid are probably at the top of the list, as well as not getting any uh, new business coming in, not being able to have business meetings. Tom, it even goes deeper than that, though. If you were planning on going to government conferences and doing some networking, if you're doing that while the government is still shut down, you're not going to be seeing a lot, read any, government employees at these events. So depending on the length of a shutdown, it really could be disruptive to things like relationship building, future business development, let alone getting paid on work that you've already performed. I think people sometimes overlook, and it's been a couple years, I guess, three, four years, I don't know, whenever we had the last long shutdown, which seemed like an eternity, it was like close to a month, is that government employees, uh, you know, legally, and then they've adopted this culturally, they can't do anything even on their own dime, so to speak. They're not allowed to do anything official even if they want to volunteer and meet with vendors or go to a conference, because it's illegal for them to actually do that. That's exactly right. And you think about some of the high-profile conferences we have coming up in October, ones where you get a lot of government speakers who are not only talking about what their plans are and what their potential business opportunities are, but they're also there to network and interact with industry because they know they don't have all the answers themselves. If that doesn't happen... That just leads to one of the more inefficient ways to run a government, Uh, not to mention that while things are shut down, part of the government still has to run, Tom. And while government employees may get paid for back time when the government eventually reopens, the same is not true for contract. Yeah. So any particular advice on contractor preparation? Is there anything they can do except sort of hunker down and cover their eyes? Well, I know that this is a time of year when companies are trying to get as much business in the door as possible. And I still think that should be priority one. Uh, Strike while the iron is hot, Tom. Uh, At the same time, I would not wait past September 15th to try to have those discussions about what comes next with my federal customer. They're going to increasingly be in their own internal meetings, their own continuity of operations, planning discussions, and it may be very difficult to get them on the line or via email to have a discussion about what that means for you. So very quickly, you know, by the middle of September, they may not have all of the answers, but, you know, you mentioned earlier, we have danced this dance before. It may have been a couple of years, but we still kind of vaguely remember the tune in our heads. So it's important to have those conversations when you can have them. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And the other issue I wanted to discuss with you is 
presuming normal processes of government and the awarding of multiple award contracts. There's a lot of Macs in the cooking, and some of them have to do with small business, some are non-small business. Knowing what you actually are is not all that simple nowadays, is it? Tom, it really is not. And the Small Business Administration has issued a series of changes really over the course of the past year, but particularly in the last six months. And as a government contractor, you should not really be able to rely, you shouldn't expect to rely on whether a government contracting officer thinks you're small or not. This is a time when all small government contractors who have a question about their size status really need to take ownership of that situation because you can be small on one day and on one procurement vehicle and not small at all on another. And there are a series of complex gates that you have to run, Tom, depending on the type of contract vehicles. You know, if you're on a GSA or a BA, multiple award schedule contract, there's one set of rules. If you're on a MAC that was set aside for small business, there's another set of rules. There's still another set, Tom, for uh, a MAC that was awarded to businesses of all sizes. So if you're a small business, there are three different answers potentially to the question of whether or not your company is small based just on the contract vehicle. If this isn't something that you've read up on lately, you really ought to do that. Because if you don't and you miscertify or improperly certify yourself as small, Tom, your company could be on the hook for renewed uh, acquisition charges if the government has to go out and do another competition, uh, definitely on the hook for legal fees, and you could potentially be facing more severe penalties like suspension or debarment. So it just really isn't worth it to throw your hands up and say, I can't get it. Uh, it really is worth your time to do a little investigation and make sure that you know your size in any given situation. Yeah, that's one of those yeah. good reminders that, yes, there's a partnership between government and industry, but if industry steps outside of what they're supposed to be doing, especially in something complex like this, you could end up in a false claims situation. You claim something you were are and falsely in one situation that might have been valid in another situation. I guess it all points to the growing importance of the compliance officer. Uh, really, you do uh, have to listen to your compliance officer. Uh, as I've said here before, compliance is pennies on the dollar. Not every company likes to hear that, but it's really true. And you can, as a small business, end up with a False Claims Act case. And those can be very expensive. If you're sitting in front of the Department of Justice uh, alleging false claims and you're looking at, you know, seven, potentially eight figures worth of direct costs, not to mention the indirect cost to your company, and it's just not worth it. So make sure you know on this contract, I'm one thing on the this contract, I may be another and tell your federal customer because they want to do business with you probably almost regardless of your size. Uh, if you're good, if you have an established relationship so uh, it pays to be honest. And all of this is in the context of a trend that should be favorable to contractors, and that is just the growing amount of federal spending that includes contracting that we're seeing over the last couple of years and looks like will happen when there finally is a budget for 24. That's right, Tom. One of the things that people tend to look at a lot when we're looking at government businesses 
how much the Department of Defense spends. But if you look at figures that were recently released by Bloomberg government, civilian agency spending grew by 53% between FY18 and FY22. That's a pretty sizable jump. And while there are different things that led to that, it's a good news story for most government contractors because it's not just all being concentrated in one area. We're talking about increased spending in professional services, in IT, in veterans benefits and medical care. And as you point out, that's likely to continue into FY24. So this is a nice market to do business in. We saw a substantial amount of spending in FY22. FY23 should finish equally as strong. So if you want to be able to participate in a market that is rich with opportunities, you definitely want to make sure you've got your compliance house in order. Yeah, the water is great. Come on in. You just have to get over that big seawall before you can get there. <laughs> Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage, it's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. 
AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. 
it's it's needed. uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah. if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.